Good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 10. Now, last week in our study through Matthew's Gospel, we came to chapter 10, which really comes in the heels of what Jesus said at the end of chapter 9. Remember, the chapter divisions are not inspired. They were added much later. So this was one kind of a flowing thing. And we saw at the end of chapter 9, verse 36, it said, But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And here we see the compassion for the Lord Jesus, excuse me, of the Lord Jesus for the lost being expressed. And he uses two metaphors really to describe them, both of which would have been very familiar to those living in an agrarian society as these disciples did. First of all, Jesus likened the multitudes to lost sheep. Lost sheep who were weary and scattered as if they had no shepherd. You know, sheep need a shepherd to watch over them, all right? Uh, They're not the brightest animals. They need a shepherd to watch over them, to lead them to green pastures to eat from, and to still waters to drink from. I say still waters because sheep, again, uh, they tend to follow one another. You know, like the expression goes, you know, just kind of following along like mindless sheep. Well, if sheep are, are thirsty and they walk up to a, to a very fast-moving river to drink from, they'll walk in, and as the first one gets swept away down the river, the others are too stupid to say, well, that guy got swept away. I'd better not go in there. They'll keep walking out and keep getting swept away, you know? That's why David said he leads me beside the what? Still waters, that's right. Because I'm too stupid, oftentimes, to do things the right way myself, so I need a shepherd. Sheep needed a shepherd, all right? They still do. And a big part of that meant watching over them to protect them from wolves and other predators who would prey on them. Again, sheep were easy prey. They, had no, they have no natural defense mechanisms except to run, of course, but they're not very fast either. So they're really, you know, real vulnerable to um, any kind of approaching predators and so on. So Jesus first likened the multitudes to lost sheep, just kind of wandering around aimlessly, no point to their life. Um, not able to choose what's right for them or the best in life. They think they do, but then they get swept away and lives are destroyed and families are broken up and, and it's, it's bad. Jesus had a heart for those who were lost. The second metaphor used to describe them was that they were like crops ready to be harvested, although he did it by inference, didn't he? When he said in verses 37 and 8, the harvest truly is plentiful, But the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So Jesus likened the lost to a great harvest of souls waiting to be saved and gathered into the kingdom. And yet he said that, you know what, you need to pray to the Lord, the Lord of the harvest, that he would send out laborers into the harvest. You see, Jesus said there's no lack of souls to save. There's just a lack of workers to go out and preach the good news and save them. And basically what he is saying is, look, the work is great, and we know the time is short, and um, the laborers are few. And we need to pray that God would send out 
not just laborers into the harvest, but us. That God would give to us a heart for the lost, you know? I mean, the only thing that would ever overcome your fear of witnessing to somebody, that's scary, right? Going up and sharing your faith. That can be pretty intimidating. The only thing that will ever overcome that is if you love them so much and care about them so much, that will overcome your fear. So we need to pray that the Lord would send not just others into the harvest, would send us into the harvest as well. But then in chapter 10, we read how the Lord's compassion gave rise to commission. And verse 1 of chapter 10 begins, And when he had called his twelve disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Now, the names of the twelve apostles are these, and we studied these guys last week in detail, somewhat, Get the CD if you weren't here. We looked at the master's men, the men that Jesus chose for this work. But listen, we said that they initially were disciples, which is a Greek word that means a learner. And then he made them apostles, which means comes from a Greek word that literally the apostolos is a Greek word. It literally means those who are sent out with a commission. It was used by the Greeks for the personal representatives of the king ambassadors who functioned with the king's authority. That was a, an apostle, an apostolos. They were often considered official ambassadors representing a king and standing or coming to someone or some people in, a, in the authority of the king. And so after Jesus chose his men, he then instructed them about their mission. And starting in verse 5, we read, These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts nor bag for your journey nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor extra staffs is the idea for a worker is worthy of his food. Now, whatever city or town you enter, inquire of who in it is worthy and stay till there till you go out. But when you go into a household, greet it. If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive you, nor hear your words when you depart from that house or city. Shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So he sends them out on a commission. But notice it was a limited commission. It was only targeting or only focusing on the people of Israel. He said that in verses 5 and 6, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles or enter a city of the Samaritans. Samaritans were half Jewish, half Gentile. Go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, the question is, why did Jesus limit their preaching of the gospel to only Israel? Well, it was because the gospel of the kingdom needed to be presented first to the people it was originally promised to. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're actually their descendants who were the covenant people of God. God made a covenant with Abraham. 
And of course, that covenant then included his descendants, which we know then were Isaac and Jacob. And then the 12 patriarchs of the 12 tribes of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. These were the people of God. These were those that he made a covenant with. And you know what? Those were the ones who were promised the kingdom first. So when Jesus came, the long-awaited Messiah, and he came to present the kingdom, it was fitting that he went to the Jews first. All right? That he went to the Jews first. Jesus explained this himself to the Samaritan woman in John 4 when he said salvation is from the Jews. Or in other words, it came to the Jews first and then through them to the rest of the world. Paul stated this very clearly to open up the book of Romans when he said in chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek or to the Gentiles. You say, but I don't think it's fair that Jesus only sent them to Israel. What about the rest of us? Well, see, this limited commission we know would eventually be replaced by the Great Commission that Jesus gave to his disciples, that would include all of us, before he ascended back into heaven after he rose from the dead. Remember at the end of Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel and even Luke, where Jesus said to his disciples, now go into all the world preaching the gospel to everyone, making disciples of all nations. So God never intended to only limit the gospel or salvation to Israel. He used them to start it out. He said to, Je- uh, to Abraham way back when he called him. Abraham originally was an idol-worshipping Gentile who lived in the area of modern-day Iraq. And God called him out from that pagan culture. He said, I want you to cross the Euphrates and I'm going to send you to a land that I'm going to give to you and your descendants forever. When he crossed the Euphrates, he became a Hebrew, which means one who crossed over. It simply means, signified a man who was now separate from the world and he was going to become the father of a brand new nation. We know it as the nation of Israel eventually. But even when God first called Abraham back in Genesis 12, verse 3, he says, in you, that is in your seed, all the families of the earth would eventually be blessed because Messiah would come not just to save the Jews, But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God so loved all the people of this world that whoever would believe on Jesus would not have to perish in hell, but would have everlasting life. So God never intended to limit the scope of the gospel just to Israel. But he did say to them, it's your responsibility now to be a light to the Gentiles. I want you to show them how blessed a people will be if they are in covenant with me. And I want to use you to be the greatest witnessing tool, the greatest light in the darkness this world has ever seen of how when a people receives me as their God, how I will bless their lives. I will be their ultimate good shepherd. I will watch over them and lead them in the right paths, etc. And so the Lord told his men, here is your mission, right? And then he said, and this is your message. Verse 7, as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, this was not a new message, guys. Of course, it was the same message that John the Baptist came, as we read came with, as we read about in Matthew three verse two, where John began his public ministry by saying, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's near." Okay, it's near. Later on, when Jesus began 
his public ministry in Matthew 4, verse 17, same message, he went out preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Here he commissions these 12 men to go out with the same message. He says, no repentance. That's obvious. You can't come to the kingdom and receive the king if you don't turn away from the world. That's what repentance is, right? It's implied. But here he gives them the same message. Go out, preach the kingdom of heaven is near. Later on in Matthew 24, Jesus is going to prophesy that this same gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come, verse 14. Look, the message of the kingdom is a simple message. The problem is it sometimes gets lost amidst all the denominational, political, cultural, social, economic, and even environmental issues that get attached to it. Good heavens, folks. Today, people don't really know what the message of the kingdom is, basically. I mean, it's ridiculous because everyone is piled onto the gospel, all their little pet deals, all right? All their little pet ideologies or their little pet uh, projects that they're really committed to and and denominations have piled on the gospel, all their rituals and ceremonies, which they say are essential for salvation. And you got even the environmentalists, who are some who are Christians, saying, well, it's all about cleaning up the world so that Jesus can come back and take charge of it. And you know what? Depending on what group you're listening to today, the, the simple, basic message of the gospel is getting drowned out by all the voices who are talking about all kinds of other things. Look, the message that Jesus gave his apostles to preach was a very simple one. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Obviously, they were to elaborate and explain what that meant, but the basic message was simple and unmistakable. Today, we would phrase it something like this as we witness. Hey, God's kingdom is coming. If you want to be a part of it, prepare your heart, repent of your sins, surrender your life to the King, the Lord Jesus Christ, because if you want to be a member of the kingdom, you've got to surrender your life to the king. He's got to be sitting on the throne of your heart. And it's got to be done right now before the kingdom comes. Because he is coming. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming back to judge the living and the dead and to establish a kingdom that's never going to end. And that's the simple message of the gospel. That the human race has gone astray. We are rebels. We rebelled in the Garden of Eden, and every day we prove we're rebels because we live contrary to what God has said. And yet God so loved us, he didn't want us to perish in hell. That's where rebels go. He sent his son that he might die in our place and give to us an invitation that if anyone wants to escape the fate that's coming upon fallen humanity, they need to receive the king, repent of their sins, and the Spirit of God will come in and make them a new creation. They will become children of God. And they will become members of the kingdom, which is coming. A kingdom of righteousness and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. A place where there's not going to be any wars any longer. There's not going to be any violent crimes. The king will be on the throne and he will not tolerate injustice or crime or evil of any kind. He will give to us a truly righteous world to live in. A place where you can walk the streets at night and not be afraid. A place where every man, as the Bible says, will sit under his own fig tree and not be afraid of war. Because we're not going to practice war anymore. We're going to turn our swords and spears into plowshares and pruning hooks. And we're not going to study or practice war anymore. It's going to be a glorious world that's coming. God is calling people who want to be a part of it. That's what the gospel is, right? It's a call to be a member of the kingdom by receiving the king 
the Lord Jesus Christ right now to reign over your life. All right. We have seen the men that Jesus chose, the message he told them to preach, and now the instructions for ministry he gave them to follow. In verse 7, he says, As you go out preaching, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, verse 8, Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Now, folks, that last statement is an absolutely foundational principle for all spirit-filled, Christ-directed ministry. And that is this. It's always to be done freely, without charge. All right? Freely, without charge. As we've already pointed out in our study of Matthew's Gospel, the healing of the sick, the cleansing of lepers, the raising of the dead, and the casting out of demons were some of the miraculous signs that the Old Testament prophets had predicted the Messiah would do that would authenticate his ministry as the Messiah. God says, you'll know he's the one I'm sending because he will have the power to heal the sick, to cast out demons, to raise the dead, and so on. And now the king is empowering his ambassadors with his authority and power to go out. Remember, that's what an ambassador was. Somebody who represented the king on foreign soil. Well, you know what? Typically what would happen is you would be an ambassador from a foreign country. You would come to another nation like somebody coming from America or going from America over to England or some other place. And, uh, well, we don't really have a monarchy here, although I'm, I'm worried about we're getting one. But say they came from England where there is a monarchy and they came over here. They would be ambassadors representing a king on foreign soil. Well, at this point, the king was still with them. He had not ascended back to his father. This was a little foreshadowing, a little preview of what they could expect when the king was taken from them. Then they would be true ambassadors representing a king on foreign soil, having all of his authority and power to represent him. That's why the Lord gave to them the power that he had to heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, etc. Because they were acting in his name, in his own power and authority. Of course, when Jesus replaced this limited commission with the Great Commission at the end of the Gospels, he extended that authority and power to all of his disciples as he challenged, or he encouraged us and challenged us to go into all the world to represent him now in his absence because he gave the Great Commission just before he went back to his father. And he said, look, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. I'm the king. And I'm delegating that authority to you. Go, make disciples of all nations. And I'm giving you the power to cast out demons, to heal the sick. What does that mean? At will? No. As the king chooses. But we see that God has given to his church the Holy Spirit. And through the Holy Spirit, people have been healed. Even the dead have been raised. We are representing an omnipotent king and we can't do it impotent life. So that's why the Spirit of God was poured out. The same power that rested upon Jesus when he was baptized in the waters of the Jordan would eventually rest upon us for the work of ministry. But once again, before we leave this point, one of the foundational principles for spirit-filled, Christ-directed ministry is, is that it's to be done freely without charge. Peter said in 1 Peter 5, he said, Look, all you shepherds, all you pastors who have been called by God to shepherd the flock of God, do it with all your heart. Do it willingly, not begrudgingly. And don't do it for the bucks. I'm paraphrasing. Don't do it for the money. Do it because you love the Lord and you want to minister to his people. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, he said, look, my joy, 
the thing that I, I just love to boast in is that I have come to you guys and I've given you the gospel free of charge. I didn't ask you for anything. I work with my own hands to supply my needs and the needs of those who were with me. Other churches supported my ministry and I use that money to freely serve you. I don't want anyone to say that Paul is in it for the money. And as Jesus is giving us some principles here for ministry, isn't he? As he is sending these men out to minister, he's giving them and us in the process some very valuable principles with regard to ministry. And one of them is, it's always to be done freely. I won't have a person come out who wants to charge a fee for ministry. And some of these guys, uh, you know, you, you see some of these characters on TV and all, um, if you want to have them out to your church for a little conference or maybe some kind of a rally or something, they will send you a detailed list of things they require before they'll come out. They'll tell you what kind of hotel accommodations that they want, five-star hotel. They will tell you that they want a first-class plane ticket to wherever you live. They will give you a, 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 a thing that will tell you how much they expect for an offering. They'll even tell you how many people you must have there at the meeting for them to come. It's got to be 5,000 or more. When a person says to me, look, I want to come out and minister, and here's what I usually charge. We tell them, you know what, you're too expensive for us. We won't have anybody out that puts a price tag on their ministry because, as Jesus said, freely you have received, freely what? Give. Now, having said that, let me balance it, though. Just because a minister of the gospel is not to put a price on his ministry, that doesn't mean that those he ministers to are not responsible before God to support that ministry if it's blessing their lives, right? No, he's not to put a price on his ministry. But that doesn't mean the people of God who are blessed through that ministry shouldn't support that man as he seeks to preach the gospel. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 14, Even so the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live by the gospel. And in 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 and 18, Paul says, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor. The Greek word for honor there is where we get our word honorarium from. He's talking about money. He's talking about you know making sure that those who labor in the word to study it and to teach others, make sure they have enough to support their families so they can continue to do that. Now, if the church is too small to give the man enough money to support his family, then you know what? If he's really called by the Lord, he'll work and minister. And I had, had to work two and sometimes three jobs when we were young in the church because this is where God called me. And the church was very small. We only had 10 or 15 people. And so you know what? It was my joy to just go ahead and work outside of ministry and, and, and that just trust God to, to bless. And he did. And eventually I was able to go full time. But Paul says, let those who labor in the word be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Simply, Paul is saying that in the Old Testament, God says you're not to muzzle the ox as it treads out the grain. What Paul goes on to say later on in the New Testament, you think God was concerned about oxen? He said it for us. When an oxen is working in the field... He, he sh that creature should be able to eat some of the grain that it's being used to harvest so that it could keep up its strength. And the Bible says the same is true of those who 
serve the Lord. Okay, and that's why Jesus tells them that when they go out to minister, he said, you know, don't take for yourselves gold, silver, copper in your money belts, nor a bag for the journey, nor extra clothing or sandals. You know why? Because those that you minister to should support you. He said a worker is worthy of his food. And then the Lord adds in verse 11, Now, whatever city or town you enter, inquire who in it is worthy, and stay there till you go out. What is the Lord saying here? I mean, who is this worthy person that they're supposed to seek out and stay with when they minister in a certain place? Well, worthy, as someone has said, doesn't mean wealthy. Although today, it's exactly what some people interpret it to mean. Uh, worthy doesn't mean wealthy or influential, but rather it refers to the spiritual and moral character of the host. In other words, the Lord didn't want them staying in the house of some immoral person because that would cast suspicion on the messenger and ultimately taint his message because it would be guilt by association, right? That's why, you know, I'm very careful if I'm asked to speak somewhere to find out who is speaking there also. Because if you share a platform with somebody who's into some really bad doctrine, it's guilt by association, isn't it? And so Jesus didn't want his guys tainted. I mean, they were the, could have been the purest guys in the whole world, but if they're staying with an, in a moral household and people knew this person that they were, they were staying with was a very immoral person, uh, it would have cast suspicion on where these guys were coming from and taint the whole message. And Jesus said, once they found a satisfactory place to stay, he said, stay there until you leave town. Look, he didn't want his ministers moving from place to place as better accommodations were offered. He didn't want them always looking for a better deal. Well, thanks a lot, but you know, so-and-so, he's got that swimming pool in the backyard, man, you know. I, it's, I just, you know, I really feel that God's calling me down there, uh, you know. And Jesus didn't want that. He didn't want them coming across as opportunists who were more concerned about their physical comfort than their spiritual ministry, right? As one author said, his sole focus, the minister, should, should be on his ministry and his contentment with what he has and where he is staying uh, will itself be a testimony to those to whom he ministers. In other words, you know, a person who just finds a good-hearted person to stay with Meager accommodations, but you know what? That's fine. It's all I need. You know, stays there, ministers, and so on. It's a good witness, right? It's a good witness. And then in verses 12 and 13, it says, But when you go into a household, greet it. If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. Now, the household that he mentions here in verses 12 and 13, don't refer to the place that they find to stay in while they're in town. This refers to the households that they were going to go to uh, throughout the day ministering. So you come to town, find a place to stay, and then from that place you leave, and you throughout the day you're visiting households, you're, you're ministering the word and so on, the gospel. Uh, and as you move from house to house, if you come to a house and the people there are worthy, put your peace upon it. If they're not worthy... Take it back when you leave. Well, what does that all mean? Well, first of all, I would assume that a house that was worthy just simply um, spoke of a, a household that was open to the things of God. 
a place where you would come and people would recognize you're a man of God. You've been sent here by God. Your message is a message from God to us. And we welcome it with an open heart. And uh, Jesus is saying, look, if they have hard hearts, you know, and they're only going to mock them, they're unworthy to receive the, the, the good news of the kingdom because they're mocking the message and making fun out of you, then leave, right? He earlier said in Matthew 7, don't cast your pearls before the what? The swine. Swine were considered unclean, defiled animals. He says, look, if an unbeliever starts to take the, the, the beautiful pearls of God's word, the truth of God, which is likened to a, a beautiful pearl or pearls, and you try to give them the truth of God and they mock it, make fun out of it, throw it on the ground, trample it, they're unworthy to receive the truth of God. Move on. Move on is the idea. This was echoed by Pastor John MacArthur. He commented on what it means to what Jesus meant when he said, you know, if the house is worthy, put your peace upon it. If it's not, when you leave, take it with you. MacArthur said the greeting was the age-old Jewish greeting, Shalom, which is usually translated simply as peace, but which carries the much deeper meaning of total well-being and wholeness of body, mind, and spirit. That was the idea behind Shalom, not just uh, hello or goodbye, it, was, it signified something very deep. Uh, the total well-being or the wholeness of the body, mind, and spirit. MacArthur said the household that gladly receives the apostles was to have its greeting of peace confirmed upon it. The implication is that truly receptive listeners were to be ministered to in the fullest way. Their open hearts to the Lord's work earned them God's richest blessing. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet, Jesus explained a short time later in Matthew 10, verse 41, shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. Then he continues, he says, God does not call his servants to minister only where the gospel is immediately and eagerly received. Many fields of service are extremely resistant to the gospel. But the focus of ministry in any area or circumstance should be on those people who are most receptive. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are promised satisfaction in Matthew 5, verse 6. And the faithful minister should give of himself fully and freely in feeding them God's word. God mandates, uh, God's mandate is that is the gospel should be preached first to those who want it most. They not only are the most deserving, but are the ones most likely to believe and win still others to Christ, end quote. And then the Lord adds a final word of instruction and warning to his apostles before sending them out. We'll finish with verses 14 and 15. And Jesus said, whoever will not receive you nor hear your words when you depart from the, that house or city, Shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. The shaking off of the dust from their feet was a symbolic gesture that they were leaving a defiled place and didn't even want the dust of that place to remain on their feet. The Jews often did this when they were leaving a Gentile town or area, because the Jews believed that even the dust of a Gentile town was defiled. And so they didn't even want to bring that defiled dust back to Israel. Okay, 
uh, in any way. Now, what Jesus said here really was the Lord's way of saying that any Jewish home or town that didn't receive the gospel would be treated, listen, to the same everlasting punishment that unbelieving Gentiles would be subject to on the day of judgment. That, folks, was mind-blowing. Because as I have said numerous times, the rabbis back then actually taught that because you were a Jew, a descendant of Abraham, and were circumcised as a man, you were automatically judgment safe. All right? You, you would never be judged because Father Abraham actually stood outside the gates of hell and he plucked out of the line of those going into hell any Jew, whether they believed in God or not. Hey, as long as you have the blood of Abraham in your veins, the mark of circumcision on your body, you were in. You were saved. So this was radical. Because the Jews were being taught, hey, your religion, your, your, your heritage, your rituals save you. And Jesus is saying here, no, only the gospel can save you. And you must receive it. You must believe the gospel and receive the king. It's not enough to be born a Catholic or a Baptist or a Lutheran or, you know, be born an American. As some people think, all Americans, we're all Christians by, nation, by you know, national birthright. Or I was baptized as a kid. That's, I'm in. Jesus doesn't say that here. A ritual will never get you into heaven. It's only a relationship which comes through faith in Christ, right? And so Jesus said, look, you Jews don't have any more of a... If you reject the message of the gospel, the same fate awaits you as does all the unbelieving Gentiles. But here's what Jesus said. But for you, your punishment in hell is going to be much worse. It's going to be more tolerable for the Gentile unbelievers who lived in Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for you guys. Why? Because with knowledge comes responsibility. You Jews, you've grown up with the truth of God. You are my covenant people. I gave to you my word. Your, your scribes and prophets prophesied my word throughout their history. The scribes wrote down my words for your people to learn and study and live by. You had the truth. You had the light. And if you don't live up to the light, then the punishment is much worse for you in hell than it is for those who had just a little light. Folks, do you think that people living in America that reject Jesus Christ are going to have a more severe punishment in hell than some guy living in India or Africa? I think so. Good heavens, we have so many sources where we can get God's truth. We can own as many Bibles as we want. They're everywhere. We can go to any church we want. They're everywhere. You can hear the gospel and God's word being taught on radio, television, internet, and so on. We have no excuse, right? We have been blessed with the light of God's truth ever since our nation was born. In fact, we were born as a nation under God. And today people are turning away in droves, getting into all kinds of Eastern mysticism and false demonic ideologies. And yet because I was born into this religion or this denomination, I'm okay. Jesus says, no, you have to receive the message of the kingdom. Hey, if you don't, not only will you go to hell, but there are degrees of punishment in hell. 
Look, I've said this before. Let me say it again. Your bad deeds, all the sins a person commits doesn't get them into hell. Neither do all your good deeds get you into heaven. You get into heaven because of your faith in Christ. Once you put your faith in Christ, all the things that you do for the Lord will accumulate rewards in heaven. Likewise, Jesus said in John 16, I think around verse 9, he said, you don't go to, a person doesn't go to hell because of their bad deeds, all the sins in their life. They go to hell because they reject Christ. But now, once they've rejected Christ, all the bad things they've done in their life will determine the degree of punishment in hell. So, very sobering thought, right? It just tells us that hell is real. And the Lord Jesus Christ, in his compassion, didn't want to see anyone go there. That's why he went out and preached the kingdom. He sent his disciples out. And now he has sent all of us out there. Very important that we understand that hell is a real place. The Lord Jesus Christ talked about hell more than anything else, more than anyone else. He even talked about hell more than love and even heaven. He didn't want anybody to go there. Now, let me just set this up for next week, okay? In verses 16 to 23, a lot of commentators believe that this is a continuation of what Jesus was teaching or talking about, all right? He commissions them in in verses 5 to 15, then he sends them out, and that's what happened in verses 16 to 23, and so on. You know what? That's not what is happening, okay? Verses 16 to 23 are not talking about this time when he sent them out. It's talking about a future time. In fact, verses 16 to 23 are some of the favorite verses of those who believe in what is one of the fastest growing doctrines or fastest spreading doctrines in the Christian church, a doctrine that I totally reject, a doctrine that will really impact in a negative way all the verses in the Bible that are designed to prophetically warn you about what's coming. The doctrine is called preterism. Preterism. What is preterism? I'm not going to tell you, okay, until you come back next week. I want you to know, though, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it because we could spend, I know that most of you are not that interested in some, you know, never heard of it. How is it going to help me live for the Lord? Well, in some ways it might if you reject it uh, rather than embrace it. But I just want you to have a working knowledge of what it means, what it's all about, because it's becoming very popular. And it's really, you know, all the warnings, future warnings that Jesus Christ and the other apostles gave to us in the Bible, including the whole book of Revelation is being written off. I think that's a serious thing. So we'll see what preterism is next week. And then hopefully we'll be able to take a little more than just verses 16 to 23. Uh, I make no promises. We'll uh, see how it goes. Father, we thank you for your word, that your word is light. And if we walk in the truths of your word, Lord, we will never stumble in darkness. And Lord, we want to be faithful ministers of you. We want to be workers bringing in the harvest of lost souls into the kingdom. Help us to learn, Lord, from the principles you've laid down here. And give us grace, Lord, that we walk humbly before our God and that we serve you with our whole heart, never looking to receive anything in return in this life, but serving only to honor you, to express our love for you and our concern for the lost. We just pray, Lord, that you will give us grace to walk in your truth in its entirety, that you will lead us in the right paths, Lord. Many are straying. 
getting off into doctrinal error in these last days, as you even said. The darkness would be so rampant, even uh, the redeemed would sometimes walk off the path of truth. And we ask you, Lord, to keep us on that path, that we walk in your truth, because it is our light. We'll never stumble as long as we walk in the light of your word. So, Lord, we thank you. We praise you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.